0: Tell us of their journey. It starts out in Cyprus and moves its way through what is today modern. Turkey, and God uses them to do great things. Even though uh, they'd be kicked out of a couple cities, even though uh, Paul would be stoned into an inch of his life, if you will, and nearly die, it was a huge success because people come to know Jesus and because uh, churches are planted, and some of those churches uh, still are are around today where people are worshiping on this Lord's Day and some of the very churches that Paul and Barnabas uh, began on that first missionary journey. And as they head back home, back to the city of Antioch, to the church of Antioch, we are told in verse 27 of uh, chapter 14 that they come back and they tell of all that God had done through them and the open door that God had given them to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's a bit of a thesis there, if you will, of our job as we come together just as Paul and Barnabas gather the church together at the end of chapter fourteen and and speak with them, we don 't see them talking about just how their week went or or just about the uh, big football game yesterday or or, or what we uh, did at work but it 's Bigger than that, as we gather together as God's people, we need to talk about what God's doing in our lives and the open doors God allows for us each and every week to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. And I would challenge us as a church that those would be some of the themes that we'd be talking about. Not that those other things aren't important but that we would begin to use uh, our walk with God as an opportunity to share. And we are told that what it did was it encouraged and strengthened the disciples. And there are some people here this morning who need to be encouraged, who need to be strengthened. They need to hear how God has moved in your life, how God has used you in a mighty way that will encourage and spur them on to the love and good deeds that God has for them. And so everything's going well. The church is growing. It's expanding. Seemingly, as we've titled this series, nothing can stop the church. It is unstoppable uh, from being uh, stopped to do uh, what God had called it to. That is until we get to Acts 15. In Acts 15, we find that there is an enemy, an enemy that is going to stop the church in its tracks. Was it going to be persecution? No, the church had experienced persecution for a long, long time, and, and they had seemingly found a way to overcome it and grow in spite of the persecution. Was it financial hardships? No, the church would struggle from time to time in the book of Acts with financial issues, but they would seemingly find ways to uh, transcend those problems. The problem or the enemy in Acts 15 that the church probably didn't see coming was that of unity. And it's a problem, and it's an enemy that the church faces today. And there are a lot of reasons why churches struggle with unity. And I would just say there's a lot of dumb reasons why churches argue and fight. There's a lot of reasons why churches have splits. But the problem or the enemy that uh, was destroying or deteriorating the unity of the church was a big one. It was doctrinal unity. It was, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about salvation? And what does it mean for someone to be reconciled to God? This wasn't small stuff. This was a big deal. It was a legitimate problem, and it needed to be figured out. And if they didn't figure it out, we wouldn't be here today. The movement would have been stopped. And what we see in Acts 15 is what I want to call a watershed moment, a turning point, if you will. Now, we have these watershed moments in our lives, these moments where our lives, because of something that happens in a particular moment or period of time, it changes the trajectory of where we're going, what we're doing, and uh, what our uh, lives in the future are going to look like. As a 42-year-old as a man, I've had a handful of watershed moments. Of course, they involve me uh, meeting Amanda and getting married. They involve the, the, the birth of, of each of my three boys. Uh, but I, I, I remember the calling into this ministry. And I remember specifically some of the things that God did to move me from what I thought my life was going to look like to what it is now in the calling to be a preacher and teacher Of God's Word. Churches have watershed moments, moments in time, decisions, meetings that take place where the trajectory of a particular local church could go in one direction or the other. And we've had those watershed moments in our church where God uniquely has brought us to a decision point, a a, a point where we needed to ask the question, God, what will you have of us And a decision needed to be made. Well, in Acts 15, we have a watershed moment, a turning point, uh, an important uh, moment in time where the church has got to make a decision because if they don't, their future would be very, very uh, tenuous at best. And what we're going to see this morning is that in Acts 15, they address this issue. Now, where we left off in Acts 14, and it's important because they kind of work one right off of the other. We see Paul and Barnabas are back from their first missionary journey. And we know it's been a success, and they're hanging out uh, with the disciples. In fact, if you notice in uh, verse 28 of chapter 14, And they remained no little time with the disciples. What it means is, is they hung around for a while with the disciples in Antioch. There were good times to be had, reunions of sort. And they're enjoying their time. But notice as chapter 15 opens up, notice what the phrase tells us. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Let's stop there for a moment. And there's a lot in this text we're going to deal with, but I want to stop there for a moment when everything was going well. When the church was enjoying its time together, this enemy arises. And I want you to know this morning, right out of the get-go, that problems occur in churches and in our lives when we least expect them. Usually problems and trials and tribulations affect our lives when everything is going well. Would you agree with that? Things are in order, everything seems to be going your way, and then out of nowhere on some random Tuesday, the world collapses around you. That is what's going on in the church. Well, what's the issue? They're enjoying themselves in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas are talking about all that God would, had done and was doing in the lives of the churches around them, and people are rejoicing. It is a good day to be in the church. That is until some men show up from Judea, and they come up, and and they're believers, and they're teaching, and they're preaching. They're credible men, and as they get up in the church, and as they interact with the Christians, they finish up their statement saying, the way that Gentiles come to know Jesus is they become Jews first. What that means is that you can't be a Christian until you adhere to all of the Jewish rules and regulations that are found in the law of Moses, especially the chief of all rights and regulations in the law of Moses is the issue of circumcision. I wonder if the Gentile men who were in the assembly said, you know what, I was planning on going to the membership class of the church, but not so much now. I don't wanna I don't wanna go. It, 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 that's, that's too much to ask. But that's what these guys are saying. What they're saying is, is that to be saved is to do something before we get to Jesus. And we are told that Paul and Barnabas stop the conversation. Or if you will stop the teaching and begin to refute with these men. And I want you to notice just the honesty that Luke gives us. Notice it says in uh, verse uh, 2 And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, there was a whole lot of yelling and there was a whole lot of arguing going on. And, And there are some who will say, That's just not good. That's not right in the church. There are times. When, when especially a false doctrine is being preached where there needs to be a stiff rebuke and reprimand to cease and desist what you're saying. And what they were saying would bring great harm to the church. And Paul and Barnabas, being the leaders of the church, they stop it and they say, we're not going to go any farther. We're not going to allow you to move from this place until you recant. Well, they don't. And notice, there's no small dissension And they debate with them. And so we've got a problem. The church of Antioch is wondering, hey, what does it mean to be saved? Paul and Barnabas are telling us one thing. Uh, People from Jerusalem are telling us a different thing. These are both good and godly groups of people. And what is the answer? And Paul and Barnabas make the decision, if this is going on in the church of Antioch, it surely is going on in the church uh, that's throughout the world. And so we need to get clarity. And so they head down to Jerusalem. And what we have is the watershed moment, the council of Jerusalem, where the church gathers for the first time since it had been spread out all over the known world because of persecution. They come back to Jerusalem, and the leaders and elders and apostles gather together to answer the question. And how they answer the question is going to determine the future steps of the church. Now this morning, I want to look at three things this morning, and I'm going to bounce all over the place within the text uh, as I've outlined this to address things, and I'll just share with you where we're going. I want to address them theologically, I want to address them philosophically, and then I want to address them practically. Those are the three things I want to do, but let me ask God's just blessing on our time and we'll move forward. Father God, we come before you and we thank you. For the opportunity to study your word. And Lord, we come to a turning point in the life of the church. And we recognize that uh, these men, by the Spirit of God, were able to come to a good consensus and a good conclusion. And that gives us great hope, Lord. It gives us great hope knowing that uh, in our working together, in our living together as followers of Jesus Christ, there will be times where we disagree. There will be times where we see things differently. But Lord, thank you for the example of Acts 15 and these wonderful church leaders who show us how to disagree well and how to come to consensus for our good and for your glory. We love you and give you the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The first thing I want to look at is uh, the Council of Jerusalem through theological eyes. What is the theological thing? This is a doctrinal issue, and we need to ask the question, what is Going on. Well, we know these men have come and they've told the men, the people in Antioch that you to be saved as a Gentile, you must go through the rite of circumcision. Now the issue that wasn't at hand, just very quickly, was the question wasn't the question of whether Gentiles could be in the church or not. In Acts chapter 10, if you remember last year as we were studying the first part of Acts, we are reminded that Peter uh, gets a vision to go to the house of Cornelius, who is a uh, leader over a group of uh, army regiments, and he's a Gentile. And what Peter is told is to go, and there's this great descriptive uh, dream and vision that he has, and he goes and and he leads these Gentiles to the Lord, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit before they have followed any dietary laws, before they have been circumcised, all of that. And so they're filled with the stamp of approval, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and Peter knows this and recognizes it, and the church seemed to affirm it. That's why Paul and Barnabas head out, and they preach not only to the God-fearing Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So the issue this morning in Acts 15 isn't whether Gentiles, you and I, could be a part of Christianity. The issue was, the theological problem, was what did we as Gentiles have to do to be a part of this Christianity movement, to be followers of Jesus Christ, which at that point was primarily Jewish. Some of the Jewish leaders were saying, you had to do All of the law of Moses. Well, upon hearing this, Paul and Barnabas say, No way, Jose, that ain't happening. We're going to refute it. Well, what we need to recognize and know is that this question is a question that still comes up today, and it's the theological question what does it mean to be saved? And we've got to answer that, and we've got to know that because we're in the business of seeing God save people. And if we are God's ambassadors to share the good news of Jesus Christ, we probably, because eternity is at stake, we probably need to make sure that we tell people the right way to be saved. It would be really, really bad. For someone to uh, do what we tell them to, get to heaven and find out that what we told them was wrong. Have you ever received directions from somebody and you've trusted the directions they've given only to find out that they had zero clue on where they were sending you? You're pretty angry. You're pretty upset. You feel duped. And so we need to know, not only for our own good, but as we are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to be able to answer the question, what does it mean to be saved? Well, I want to give you two uh, just very quick statements about the gospel that will help us to remember what the gospel truly is. Well, let's look. The gospel is not a couple things. Number one, it isn't about what you do, but what God has done. And so these men say, to, in order to be saved, you've got to do something. And what they do is they put circumcision front and center. In order for you to be in a right standing with God, you've got a job to do. Well, I want to remind you on the cross of Calvary, when Jesus was hanging there, being the sacrifice for our sins, Jesus utters the words, it is finished. The job is done. If Jesus had something for us to do, he would have said, instead of it is finished, now it's your turn. He doesn't do that. Jesus recognized What the Father has told us over and over again in Holy Scriptures. And that is you and I are lost and without hope. You and I, because of our sin, have a sentence against us of death. We're at war with God. And there's nothing we can do in our uh, unrighteous state to get right with God. In fact, the book of Isaiah tells us that even our most righteous deeds are but filthy rags before God. We can't do even if we tried to do righteous things. God says uh, righteous things done through sinful hands are still sinful. And so there's nothing we can do. And some of you this morning, maybe you've walked in this morning and you're looking at a church and you're, and you're trying to figure out uh, what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of churches that will tell you that to be a follower of Jesus Christ means first you've got some things to do. And what they will tell you is, is that if you want to make it to heaven, your good has to outweigh uh, the bad. And so you're busy doing all of these things, trying to get on God's good side. And what we are learning in Acts 15 is that that's just not the case. What the difference between Christianity and all of the religions isn't what we do, what other religions say we must to get to God, but what God has done. Listen, the only thing you need to do is trust that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And when you believe, God says he gives us the right to become children of God. And so we don't have to work, we don't have to add all of these preliminary steps to our salvation. And so these men that came up from Judea are dead wrong. They are adding hindrances, they are adding blocks, if you will, to people to be able to come to Jesus. The second thing I want you to recognize is what does it mean to be saved? Well, the gospel isn't change, then come to Jesus. Instead, it's come to Jesus and be changed. There are some who will say because of your sin, because of your wrong habits and your sinful behavior, you need to clean that stuff up before you get to Jesus. Because you can't show your face to Jesus in the mess that you're in. Think about for a moment, you're going to meet someone famous. You want to put your best foot forward. And so uh, you buy a a new suit, you you, you dress up real nice, you clean yourself up. Why? You want to give a good first impression. And what many will say is, is that that's how we come to Jesus. Get yourself cleaned up. And so you who are broken, you who find uh, your life filled with dysfunction because of sin, before you come to Jesus, clean some of that stuff up. Get rid of some of those bad behaviors. Uh, stop cursing the way you do. Stop doing the things you do. And then once you've cleaned yourself up, then you can come to Jesus. I want to remind you that Jesus met sinners where they were at, not after they cleaned themselves up. Think for a moment, the woman at the well. She is midst adultery when Jesus speaks to her. Think about the woman caught in adultery. She is caught in the act, and Jesus meets her there. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is stealing from people, and Jesus doesn't say, no, figure things out, clean yourself up before I'll come to your house. He says, no, Zacchaeus, I'm coming, and I'm going to spend time with you today, even though you're a dirty, rotten, filthy scoundrel. One of the things that we see uh, that helps us in this is all of the miracles that Jesus did. The miracles where people are broken and crippled and, and, and dealing with all kinds of issues and struggles. Jesus doesn't come to them and say, you know what, go do some rehab before you come and see me. He meets them in their inability. He meets them in their pain and sorrow. And he changes them and he moves in them in such a way that they're never the same. Brothers and sisters, never let us forget, and never let us ever to anybody, I don't care how hardened of a criminal they are, how dirty of a sinner they are, don't ever put preliminary steps into someone's life that they can't come to know Jesus without doing some things. You see, the problem is, as we listen to this text and we say, well, circumcision, we would never do that We would never ask someone to do something like that, but how many times have we told people that in order to be saved, they need to clean themselves up? And the Bible says that's a doctrine of demons. The gospel is good news because it saves sinners right where they're at. So here we have a theological debate. What does it mean to be saved? To be saved, quite frankly is to bow the knee to Jesus, to see Him as the one and only, and to see what He has done, not what you think you need to do, but what He has done so that by His grace, by His love, by His mercy, we might experience newness of life. These men were coming and saying, the gospel, Jesus' sacrifice, wasn't good enough. And because of that, they were leading many people astray and so what happens notice in the text so the apostles and the elders gather together they gather back in jerusalem and they consider this matter and after there had been much debate peter stood up and said to them brothers you know that in the early days god made a choice among you that by my mouth the gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. As Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild it its ruins. I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the, of the Gentiles who turn to God but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's just stop there. And so they gather together. Three speeches are made. First Peter speaks about his encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Then Paul and Barnabas speak, and they talk about their first missionary journey throughout the area that we've just studied in in Cyprus and uh, modern-day Turkey, and then they speak of how the Gentiles came to know Jesus and and how they were filled with the Holy Spirit and no circumcision or rites of the law of Moses were followed. And then James speaks up, and James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, He shares, and he says, this is what I believe. This is what I think is wise counsel. And he gives the direction that we should not put any stumbling blocks before people as they come to Jesus, including Gentiles, who the Jewish people said were dogs. So what do we gain from that? I want you to know that not only is this a theological issue, it's a philosophical one. And the philosophical question we have to ask is, what traps should we steer clear of? There are traps in in thinking. Now, here's the thing. We might have the right theology, but our methodology may be all off. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, had the right theology. Gentiles were equal on equal footing as Jews were in the mind and heart of God. But in Galatians chapter 2... His methodology falls apart because he starts giving uh, prominence to the Jews while detracting from the Gentiles. He eats with the Jews according to Jewish standards when he's with the Jews, but when he's with the Gentiles, he does something totally different. He had become a hypocrite. And the Apostle Paul says you can't do it. So how do we keep from being hypocritical even though we may have the right theology? I want you to notice a couple traps that we see from this text. Trap number one. Trap number one is when a church starts to pacify insiders instead of pursuing lost outsiders. So the church gathers together. They bring all the leaders together, and it would have been really easy for the church leaders to say, you know what? Let's not rock the boats, let's not uh, cause any trouble. Uh, So let's just listen to what our churchgoers are saying. And and let's tell the Gentiles, they're new to it, they wouldn't know anything different. Let's just tell them they have to do these things. But that's not what they do. But that's what many times pastors and leaders within churches find themselves doing. I can't tell you how many weeks at, at times go by... Where I never have a discussion with any of the people that come to my office or call my phone uh, talking about how to reach more people for Christ, but how to make them happy with regards to the church and the church programs and ministries. And what we need to be careful with as leaders is that we don't pacify preferences over what our mission is. We learned that last week mission for God to share the good news of Jesus Christ is our number one priority. But how often, even in my own life, I've got preferences, I've got ideas and thoughts where this church should go. How often do uh, the pacifying of our needs trump that of reaching out? I want you to notice that if their job in Acts 15 was to tell the Gentiles who were coming to Jesus how to be like them, and that instead of them being a hospital, they became a country club and their country club had these these things that they needed to do in order that they may be found right in the eyes of God, and they were dead wrong. We need to be careful that we don't seek to pacify the insiders of our church because God has called us to a mission. So how do you know if you're pacifying insiders instead of pursuing lost outsiders? Well, I'll tell you Number one, how do you know if you're drifting this way? When church becomes all about you and not others. When church becomes all about you and not others. When you find yourself complaining about things instead of caring about people drawing close to Jesus. Well, I didn't like the song they sang. I didn't like how uh, they did this part of the service. I didn't like how uh, Tim shared from the, the Bible. I've got issues. I've got struggles. Well, we all do, right? But the issue isn't what makes us happy. The issue isn't what does it for us, but what God is doing through us to impact the lives of others. Trap number two: Being something is different than simply doing something. Now you're like, "Well, what does that mean? What the people in Acts 15 were doing, we're saying, "Listen, we really don't care if you're changed or not. We really don't care if you uh, have had a experience or not, what we want you to do is we want you to do some things that will prove to us that you're on the right track. We don't really care if there's been anything that's changed on the inside. We're only concerned about the outside. And so do things. And I want you to know that for many, many in the evangelical world today, they equate being a Christian not with a real relationship, but this list of things that they do. I go to church. I'm a part of a small group. I serve in my church. Therefore, ergo, I'm a Christian. Well, I want you to know that anybody can do those things. Anybody can show up to church. Anybody can go to small group, and anybody can serve. You don't have to have the right heart to do that, I've been a pastor long enough to know that people come to church for all kinds of reasons. People come to small groups for all kinds of reasons. And surely people serve for all kinds of reasons. And it doesn't always equate to that they love Jesus. But what? By putting circumcision as the precursor to what these men and women were going to do, what they said is being a Christian really is just doing things. So you can say, I'm a Christian because I eat certain things. I'm a Christian because I um, have been circumcised. I'm a Christian because of look of all the things I've done. Instead, being a Christian is, I'm a Christian in spite of myself. I'm a Christian because of the love of God. I'm a Christian because of the grace of God. I'm a Christian because of the mercy of God. Of God And what that means is the third trap, which is kind of connected they're connected together two and three, is that we focus in on external conformity instead of inward change. What they were worried about was body parts. What they were worried about was dietary loss. And the leaders say, this isn't it. We are blocking people from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we need to be careful with again is telling people that they need to do things before they come to Jesus. And here are some of the things that we do. We create laws of conformity. And what we do is we don't go to God's word. We look at our own lives and we say, Well, I'm a good Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and and I don't do certain things. I don't have tattoos, I don't drink beer. I don't have cable TV, I don't hang around with unbelievers, I I, I do all these things. And I'm a good Christian, and I'm a good Christian, and so if I'm a good Christian and I stay away from these things, then the equation in my head goes this way, then surely all good Christians stay away from these things. No, it's not how it works. Because good Christians follow God's Word. And you may make a decision to not do those things. And another person may decide that they're going to do those things. That doesn't make them a bad Christian. just makes you a different person with different experiences in that. And what we need to be careful with is that we don't presume upon people based on this external conformity list that we've created that we will then say, well, you're not a good Christian or you're not a Christian at all because you've done things that even though the Bible doesn't say so, I say so, and as a result, I question whether or not you're a true follower of God or a good follower of God. And as a result of that, what do we miss out on? The stamp of approval that Paul and Barnabas say in the text. The stamp of approval is that God filled these men and women with the Holy Spirit. Internal change took place. Now, I want you to know sometimes internal change, or I always say always internal change Uh, precedes external change there has to be a change of the heart before the outside's going to really change in the way that we want it to and so they're saying listen who cares what happens to the heart just do the list of do's and don'ts the final trap we need to be careful of is elevating our liberty over others liability elevating our liberty over others liability so what does it mean to be saved They come to the conclusion, notice what James says. James says that it is the judgment, in verse 19, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't make circumcision an issue. It's not an issue. But what he says is, and he compromises, which we'll talk about in a moment, what he says is, I want you to teach them some of these things, to abstain from some of these things. And what the Gentiles are called to is that they don't need to be given to circumcision. In fact, they don't need to be given to the more than 600 laws that Moses had decreed in the Old Testament. So think about this. You've got a list of 600 do's and don'ts. And the Jewish people in in the church are there with a clipboard saying, did you do this? Did you do that? And as a Gentile, you're like, no, uh uh-uh. No, it didn't do that one either. And what they're saying is, well, you're not a good Christian, or you may not be a Christian at all. And they're like, but I read the Scriptures, and I don't see that, that it's addressed to me in that way. But notice what is articulated. So the Gentiles have freedom. They don't need to be circumcised. All the men in the room said, amen, right? Membership class for men started to increase greatly amongst the Gentiles. That was a joke. You should have laughed. And yet what the people, what the leaders of the church say is, okay, but there's some things that though you have liberty, though these don't impact your relationship with God, there are things that we want you to abstain from. Now notice what he asked them to do. And this gets a little complicated, and I'll explain in a moment why. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn from God, turn to God, but we should write to them. To abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. What? What in the world did they just bring up? Now, one of them I get. Sexual immorality I get. Uh, Things polluted by idols, that seems to make sense. But now we start talking about all of these different issues, and they give four. There, and write this down, these are recorded in Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 18. And we see them almost verbatim right out of that text. It's as if what James has in mind is Leviticus 17 and 18. And Leviticus 17 and 18 are these ceremonial things that also merge the moral side of it. Now this is where unbelievers will yell and scream at us about Scripture. What they will say to us is that we are totally inconsistent with regards to the Bible. We pick and choose which passages of the Bible we agree with. And so we plant different crops alongside uh, one another. We all are wearing fabric that has been threaded together with two different kinds of fabric. We eat shellfish. We eat pork. We do all of these things. But then we call out uh, different types of sexual immorality as sin. We call out things and they say, you are wholly inconsistent. I want you to know that that what we see in the Scriptures are uh, two types of laws. Number one, we have ceremonial laws... And the ceremonial laws were the laws like the dietary restrictions, uh, the Sabbath, uh, things that uh, were important to uh, the people of Israel, especially during the time of the great wilderness experience. Uh, They were given to bring structure and order uh, to the uh, millions of Jews who were living life and pursuing God. The ceremonial law never made anybody right. It kept them healthy, it kept them safe, it allowed them to have a strong judicial system, if you will, in, in the historic uh, Israel nation. But then the second thing, and we, we would say as, as Gentiles, the ceremonial law has been put away. It was there for a period of time. And Jesus himself says of some of the ceremonial things, they no longer hold sway in our lives. And we know that because Peter is told by God himself to, to move from the dietary restrictions, to take and eat all the things that he said at one point were unclean. They were there for a purpose. But there's another part of the law, and that's the moral law. And the moral law is, is the Ten Commandments. The moral law are things that haven't changed. These weren't true just for Jews, but also Gentiles alike. And so listen, a Gentile couldn't say, well, God told the Jewish people not to murder, but I'm Gentile, so I can murder anybody I want. So what now, then, now that we know the ceremonial doesn't hold uh, sway in our lives today, the moral does, what do we do with these restrictions, if you will, that are given, these four? Now, they seem to be both ceremonial and moral. We would say ceremonial, the issue of blood... The issue of strangling what that means is is, and if you know anything about kosher butchering uh, there's a certain process that Jewish butchers go through to bleed out an animal so that there's no blood in the animal that means you couldn't just really quickly that means you couldn't take something that was killed on the road that sat in its blood for a while and uh, cut it up and, and eat it I know many of you are like well I don't do that so I'm talking more of our West Virginia family members here that take roadkill and and eat it. But there were certain ways that you would do things and eat food and all that. So we get that. But I also want you to know that there were things that were sacrificed to idols. And so they would take an animal and they would sacrifice it to an idol at a temple. And then they would take the food and they would sell it at market. And what would happened was, is it was way cheaper to take stuff that had been used already for the worship of false gods, to put it in market than to go buy an animal who had been untouched other than you taking it and eating it. And so what are we to do with these things? Well, I want you to know, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what to make of this, because what it seemingly is brought up is that these things are ceremonial. Well, we know sexual morality is not ceremonial. Now, some have said in, in commentaries that what it means is, is that there were certain close kinship relationships that Gentiles allowed themselves to be married into. And what James is saying is, okay, you can't marry your first cousin anymore, Gentiles. Stop doing that. Others have said that what it is is it's, it's table fellowship. And what it means is don't do anything, Gentiles, that would cause your Jewish counterparts to be offended. Well, again, the sexual immorality is an issue because it would be like saying, you know what, the reason why I'm not given a sexual immorality is because my Jewish friends might be offended. No, the Bible's clear. God is offended by sexual immorality. And another would say that the issue is the issue of paganism. That while there is liberty, that many of these liberties were found in pagan culture. And the Gentiles were to give up their liberties with regards to pagan culture and to say, I'm not going to be a part of this former way of living, and I'm going to abstain from these things so as not to offend. I will tell you, I've racked my brain even this morning. I did more study of it. I don't know what to make of it, but here's what I know. Whatever the reason for these restrictions were, the Jewish people agreed to it and the Gentiles were okay with it. We never have any more uh, real dialogue with regards to, in fact, the Apostle Paul later says it's okay to eat food sacrificed uh, that was sacrificed to idols, that food is food and we shouldn't make it more than it is. And so there's a whole lot of question, there's a whole lot of debate as to what that's all about. But here's what I want you to know. They came to an agreement. They came to an agreement where they said seemingly, though I have liberty, I'm not going to allow my liberty to trump relationships. And I will tell you there's a good precedent to be set within the church with regards to that. You and I are free to do a lot of things. But I want you to know our freedom at times will offend others. And we need to be willing to say, while I have freedom to do certain things, to maybe watch some things, or to participate in certain things, or to eat or drink certain things, I need to be cognizant of those around me that not everybody is where I may be, that not everybody's conscience is going to react just as my conscience does. And when that happens, we need to show charity. We need to show love. We need to default and say, my freedom to do something doesn't trump me hurting someone's feelings. And say, well, God says it's okay. In fact, the Bible says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Beneficial for you or me and surely not beneficial for all of our relationships. And we've got to be careful with regards to that. And I will tell you that one of the biggest issues we struggle with as a church, and I mean Church Big C, as a, as a uh, worldwide church, is not the heavy-duty doctrinal things. We've got those figured out thanks to the church fathers that have clearly articulated what's inbounds and out-of-bounds. What we struggle with is all of these secondary issues where maybe we see things differently than someone else. And what they're saying is, don't let, don't elevate your liberty against the liability of others. So, this brings us to one final thing. And I know this is a cumbersome text. I know this is difficult because we're trying to put 21st century into a moment in time where we don't have explanations for everything. But there is a 21st century a practical uh, truth that can come out. Let's look practically. How do church leaders stay unified? If there's a practical lesson, Circumcision isn't an issue anymore, right? We don't, that hasn't been a problem for two centuries now. Uh, we do fall prey to some of the things that are coming up. If we kind of work and, and stretch things a little bit, we can see how our place in this text may be. But the third one is the most important one. And that is practically what we learn from this text is that the church has to deal with crisis, The church has to deal with what happens when we don't agree. And just like the church in Jerusalem, we will fail in our mission for God if we're not unified. So how did the church stay unified? Let's look at a couple things very quickly. Number one, we've got to expect it. We need to expect that we're a group of sinners led by sinners because our elders are sinners just like you are. And if we're a group of sinners led by sinners then there's going to be a lot of selfishness in this place. There's going to be a lot of disagreement. There's going to be a lot of fighting. And so if you've come today, I welcome some new uh, attenders into our church this morning. And if they've come with this idea that I'm looking for a perfect church, then I want you to know right off the get-go, I don't want any false advertisings, we're not it. Not even close. And that's coming from the pastor. And one of the reasons we're not close is because of the pastor. All right? We are imperfect people, and we are far from having it all put together, and that means we're going to rub against one another and cause friction and cause issues and struggles just like the early church did. There are going to be times where people are going to teach things that we disagree with. There are going to be times that we do things that others are going to disagree with us with regards to it. We are going to get on each other's nerves. And when that happens, we need to know what to do with it. And the first thing we should do is we should expect it. We should not be Pollyanna about it with rose-colored glasses. This will never happen. It will happen. It has happened. And our job is to figure out, as the early church did, how to transcend it. Number two, once we expect it, we need to then um, deal with it. Now, there are a lot of churches that don't deal with stuff. And I will tell you that this applies to our own personal engagement with uh, relationships, that there are people who fight and there are people who are driven to flight. Neither are right. What we need to do is find a, a middle ground, and the church does. And notice what they do they seek to resolve it. The church had a problem. It was a big problem. It led to division and arguments. People were in two camps. Both thought they were right. They argue. Great discussion and debate takes place. And what happens? The leaders sit down and talk. It's not the congregation that does it. It is the leaders. They meet together. They gather together. It's a church issue. Church leaders are to deal with church issues. So church leaders, how do you deal with issues? Number one, write these down very quickly. Calm down. Calm down. So they've had all this fight, all of this struggle. And in verse 6, it says that the leaders gathered. This is an orderly group, not a mob. We see that people spoke. There's no outbursts. There's no yelling. In fact, in verse 12, it says that the assembly fell silent. No one spoke until the other was finished. What a novel approach. It was done in a calm fashion. Leaders need to debate but they need to do so in an orderly way. Number two, after they calm down, they need to communicate. Three speeches are given. We see speech from Peter, from Paul and Barnabas, and from James. And as they communicate, they communicate a couple things. Number one, their experience. Here's what we've experienced in our lives. And number two, how they believe God is interpreting their experience. And they're doing so not saying that my experience trumps your experience. What they're saying is, here's what happened, and here's why I believe God has ordained this experience to be right and true. No one says, my way is the only way. So they communicate, and they speak humbly, pointing to one another what they believe God is interpreting in their lives. Number three, they compromise. They compromise. Circumcision's off the table, Gentiles. All the Gentile men said, yee great. But then they said, hey, don't offend your Jewish brethren. And so compromise. Very rarely, when debate or discussion comes up between two polar opposites of, of decisions or thoughts, will you ever get to one side or the other. Let me tell you something. This is the problem with Washington these days. There's no compromise There's no seeing eye to eye on some things. And so they compromise. And in the church and amongst church leaders, there needs to be compromise. Then there needs to be consensus. Write that down. Consensus. Consensus is, well, what are we going to tell people? And notice, and we didn't read this part of the text, but in verse 22 all the way through uh, verse 29, they write a letter. And the letter speaks uniformly. Here's what the leaders agreed to. There's unispeak. There isn't one person say, well, I think this happened. Another person said, well, I think this happened. There is, we're going to write it down so everybody's on the same page and so that the people of God can know where their leaders stand. And then the congregation is brought in. And what's the congregation's job? Notice verse 30. So they're sent off. They're going to tell everybody what's happened. They went to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Here's what we agreed upon. No circumcision, but there's a couple things, Gentiles, we want you to be cognizant of that will offend uh, the uh, Jewish people. Notice what happens. And when they read it, they rejoice because of its encouragement. And so the job of the congregation is to celebrate what the church leaders have done, to celebrate their leadership, to celebrate their wisdom in what God has called them to. I will tell you, if we will follow this prescription, then our church, as it has for the last 15 years, will stay unified. It is when these things start to erode that we find ourselves falling into disunity, finding fights and quarrels and struggles among us. The church came to a problem and they addressed it head on. They addressed it theologically, they addressed it philosophically and they addressed it practically. And I don't know what the next problem is going to be for Village Bible Church. I don't know when it's going to come or what it's going to look like, but I know it's going to come. And what we need to do is we need to prepare We need to pray, and then when these issues come up, we need to be ready to do the hard stuff so that the church of God can stay on mission. Had they not gotten this right, my friends, we wouldn't be here. It would have splintered, and the movement probably would have died. But because they addressed it in this watershed moment, we stand here today unified as a church on mission for God.